The following content is explicit. It's Monday, April 2nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mary Wilson, producer, sitting in for Mike Pesca. Pesca is out, and I'm not staying. Just coming off the bench long enough to pass the baton to a couple other people and quickly resume my seat shelling sunflower seeds and drinking excessive amounts of seltzer. This is where I'm comfortable. On the bench, surveying the world of journalism from the dugout, gesturing at the field with my editors. Sitting on the bench, you develop field sense as you gaze out at your fellow journalists. You can read your team. Who's tired? Who's looking strong? Who's itching to get in the game? And if I could turn to the coach of the national reporting team, I'd say, Coach, the White House press corps needs a break. Bring them in. I had this feeling listening to the Sunday shows yesterday. The White House is this tired story. Another norm broken. Another cabinet officer fired. Oh, this is a new kind of threat made via tweet. It's a domestic war story. You know what the big story is. It's just a matter of checking the date and the principles. The verbs are the same. Just like war coverage, White House stories have gotten repetitive and confusing and disheartening. Bring in the White House reporters. Give them a break next to me on the bench. You know who to send in their place, right? the obit section. I wish the country's obituary writers could all switch seats with the entire White House press corps. Just for a little bit, three months, I would be riveted. You know how a great feature story can revive your interest in a hotspot halfway around the world? A photo essay about a game of buzkashi in Afghanistan, or a profile of a ballsy broad in Mexico who fights gang violence by organizing a citizen's police force from the back of her pickup? We need a fleet of hardwired feature story writers to descend on the national politics beat. The people writing obits are the utility players we need for this task. Give me something on the unlikely friendship of two diametrically opposed Supreme Court justices. I miss reading all the Scalia-Ginsburg BFF stories. Most of them, the ones I noticed anyway, came out after Justice Scalia died. Or remember hearing about how much House Speaker Paul Ryan really liked the late Representative Louise Slaughter? Didn't it make you care about both of them more? I didn't know he liked her so much until he made a statement about her passing. What's going on in the U.S. Senate gym? Who eats lunch together in Congress? Who else has a sweet nickname from the president, like Hopi Hicks had? My friends, my fellow reporters, are scoffing at me as I say this. I know. Reporting is not meant to entertain you or inspire you. It's not meant to make it easier to get up in the morning. It's not meant to meet you where you are. It's cold water on your face. Reveille. Here's the world. But... I also need reporting that draws me back into a story that's high on plot, but also quite plotting. I need stories that remind me the government is run by people and all their attendant pride and fear and idealism and vanity. You know, the stuff that shows up in the back of the paper. In the spiel, I'm handing the baton to Slate's Osita Wanevu. He's going to talk a little bit about a media world dust-up that everyone in our office was talking about last week. And he'll explain why he doesn't buy the line that the media has a liberal bias problem. But first, Mike's interview with Charles C.W. Cook, editor of NationalReview.com, about the Second Amendment, why it should not be repealed, and the various ways in which they disagree on gun control. So on this program, I often talk about guns and gun control and gun rights, and a frequent tactic of mine is to take an outrageous or ridiculous or false claim by the likes of a Dana Lash or a Rush Limbaugh or even a Ben Shapiro, it pains me to a certain extent to say, and uh, 
unpack them, as the graduate students say, and perhaps demonstrate why those aren't good arguments at all. I have a harder time doing that, but I am going to try with the arguments of Charles C.W. Cook. He is the editor of National Review Online. He is not only a gun expert, but I think someone who always sticks to the facts and fights fair. So I wanted to have him on. Hello, Charles. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. So before we even start, would you say, I mean, there you are at the National Review and you are a conservative with a libertarian bent. Is it the gun issue that shaped your politics to this day? It did have a a big role, uh, although it wasn't so much because I wanted people to have guns. In fact, I was quite anti-gun growing up. It was when I was studying 18th century history, I got into the question of what the Second Amendment means. And the case for what's called the standard model, the individual rights model, was so overwhelming and so broadly rejected on the left, this is pre-Heller, that I began to be a little disillusioned with the, the center left. And I think that more than anything got me interested in not just American history, but also more more conservative or classically liberal ideas. So yeah, that did have a big effect on me, but but not in the normal "I want to keep my gun" sort of way. Right. So the sta- the individual model is the one that looks at the Second Amendment and said, "Well, this was designed for militias, and individuals don't have a right to guns." And before the Heller decision, that was not even not just the left, but the courts at large had never found an individual right to own a gun. And your research showed that's clearly what the founding fathers intended. Well, it is an individual right. Yes, that, that is what my research showed. I, I think it's slightly misleading. I'm not accusing you of, of being misleading, but I think it is slightly misleading when people say that the court had never found an individual right to bear arms, in that that is true, but they'd never found the opposite either. This had not been litigated. Um, now, I would say that's because it was so obvious. If you go back to the jurists in the early 19th century and the late 18th century, they were clear on this. It, it wasn't really debated. If you read the execrable Dred Scott decision, Justice Tawney says quite openly, if we allow African-Americans to become citizens, they'll start carrying guns. Well, of course, they weren't allowed in militias. It's in the the debates over the passage of the 14th Amendment, the 1865 Civil Rights Act is explicitly mentioned as one of the individual rights uh, through the the, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which will be granted to, to freed slaves. It's there in the late 19th century and so on and so forth. So you know, I mean, yes, it's true. It never came up in the Supreme Court directly, but that's, you know, in the same way that the First Amendment wasn't actually litigated until the Free Speech Clause wasn't litigated until the 20th century either. That doesn't mean the Alien and Sedition Acts were okay. Yeah. So let's start with a place of agreement. You recently wrote a rant. In fact, you didn't recently write it. You wrote it in 2015 saying, go ahead, guys, if you want to try to repeal the Second Amendment, be my guest. The theory being this will bring a lot to the fore that people who say they want to repeal the Second Amendment wouldn't want to grapple with. Okay, you wrote that in 2015. National Review Review just republished it because the idea of repealing the Second Amendment When you first wrote the article, the thinker, the public intellectual who you were rebutting, who put forward this case, was the comedian Rob Delaney. But now in 2018, not only does Brett Stevens' columnist, conservative columnist of the New York Times write it, so does former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens repeal the Second Amendment. What's your case against repealing the Second Amendment? Why are you saying, be my guest? Well, I mean, I I think we have to acknowledge that irrespective of one's view on guns, or in fact on anything, the US Constitution is extremely difficult to amend. 
I mean, people say flippantly, let's just repeal the Second Amendment. The process would be grueling for its advocates. I mean, the first thing you would have to do is to convince two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of the states, which is almost impossible. You'd have to essentially found another party. If you tried to do it within the Democratic Party, you would hand an awful lot of elections to Republicans. You would have to be explicitly on the record asking Americans to acquiesce to the removal of one of the Bill of Rights. And you'd have to do that at all sorts of levels, PTAs, you'd have to go to bowling leagues, you'd have to go to a lot of blue-collar workers who might agree with the leaders of this movement on other questions, unions maybe, but probably don't on repealing the Second Amendment outright. But then even if you manage somehow to do that, which I think would be almost impossible, but even if you manage somehow to do that, you'd have all of the work still ahead of you because to repeal the Second Amendment is not to confiscate all the guns automatically and it's not even to change all of the laws automatically. After the Prohibition Amendment was passed, you still had to have the Volstead Act and then you still had to enforce the Volstead Act. So you would see a similar thing here. You'd run into the 45, I think, state constitutions that also have individual rights to bear arms. And I think progressives would do well to think through the implications of that enforcement, even if they vehemently disagree with me on the, on the, the underlying question. It's often said, and I think this is true, that we can't get rid of 11 million illegal immigrants. We just can't do it. We don't know where they are. To round them up would necessitate a massive sort of federal police force of the sort that everyone should oppose. There are almost 400 million guns in America, and uh, a lot of them are owned by people who really don't like the government very much and would not give them up. Yeah, um, uh, and a lot of more, them are owned by people if they gave up their first 100 guns, they'd still have a couple hundred left. Well, that's right. And so just to start with, it would be difficult to achieve. But but the reality is that I would probably not be the first target. Minorities disproportionately would be. Minorities who are disproportionately poor, who live in cities, and I'm not sure that civil libertarians want to go down that road. If we look, for example, at the drug war, we might have an outline of what we would expect. We would see a great deal of incarceration. We would see a great deal of unequal prosecution and of caprice. When most people say repeal the Second Amendment, they're not saying so that there's no constitutional check. They're saying because we want to take right. the, the guns away or a lot of them away. And that's one thing to do in Japan which doesn't have many, or in Britain, my, my country of birth. But it is another thing to do here. Right. And I, when Brett Stevens was writing about it, I was truly wondering, I don't think he's a dishonest person, but I was wondering, are you trying to make some sort of bank shot point uh, that you're actually pro-guns and you're trying to write uh, an essay where you don't give away your real position, but just uh, the implications of the essay show how hard it is to take away guns. But then when John Paul Stevens wrote it, I was really flummoxed because I do not think you have to monkey with the Second Amendment at all to pass gun control measures. Well, that's the strongest argument, I think from your position. Now, I do disagree with that, and I'm happy to explain why. Um, but the argument- No, I'd rather you Lawrence... not. I'd rather you just call it the strong argument. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Well, the, the argument Lawrence Tribe put against Justice Stevens, um, and indeed the argument that Barack Obama used to make, is the best one. And that, that goes like this. Clearly, the Second Amendment protects an individual right. And that was Obama's view. He said so at the time of Heller. It's also Lawrence Tribe's view. But there is no reason that that individual right cannot be regulated in most of the ways that gun control groups want. Now, obviously, you can't get rid of all guns with the Second Amendment in place. But this argument holds that you can limit magazine size. You can 
ban so-called assault weapons, uh, you can restrict or at least require permits for carry and so on and so forth. Do you disagree with any of those three parts? Any of the magazine size, the types of weapons and licensing? I'm not talking about the effectiveness. I'm talking about the constitutionality of trying those things. I do. Yes, I do. And I'll tell you why. Because Mm -hmm. the Heller decision sets up an in-common use standard. It also sets up a dangerous and unusual standard, which is often misrepresented as unusually dangerous. It's dangerous and unusual. And as Dianne Feinstein pointed out this morning, there are 15 million so-called assault weapons in the United States. The AR-15 is the most commonly purchased rifle in America. It's the Ford F-150 within the genre. Goodness knows how many high-capacity magazines there are. Under the plain text of the Heller standard, AR-15s are in common use uh, for lawful purposes. I mean, by definition, we would know if 15 million ARs were being misused. They are therefore protected. And if you go back to the, the, the founding and you look up contemporary definitions of arms as opposed to ordinance, um, this is one of the reasons that line you hear from less intelligent people, well, why can't I have a nuclear weapon, is so silly. Ordnance wasn't protected by the Second Amendment. Arms are, and the right. contemporary definition... And this has to do arms. with things like carbines and if the bullet is, if the round is within the chamber as opposed to without... Yeah, ordnance, you know, bombs, rockets, um, and so forth. Now, there is obviously a line there which you'd need some sort of uh, decision on, as Justice Scalia pointed out. Is a rocket launcher count? That's a difficult question. I accept that. But uh, an AR-15 is a, is a carbine. It's it's a standard rifle. It is included in every single contemporary, uh, by which I mean 18th century, definition of arms. It's not unusual. So I don't think, no, that New York's laws are constitutional under the Second Amendment. I am less confident about that, by which I mean I'm far more open to arguments to the contrary than I am on, say, whether the Second Amendment protects an individual right, though. Okay, let's put the constitutionality aside. Let's talk about effectiveness. The vast majority of murders of gun homicides in this country have nothing to do with any type of rifle or or long guns, and the AR-15 and those type of weapons would fall under that. It's really you know, in the hundreds, and we're talking about 15,000 or so so murders. But here is my point. Even if such a measure is something like 99% ineffective, because we have 13,000 or so murders, if it's 99% ineffective, that means it could save 130 lives. And I think, especially since how AR-15s are used are in these uh, big, high-profile school shootings, I think that might be worth pursuing. Well, I don't, and I'll I'll explain why. It's certainly not because I don't want to save 130 lives. I I do. We we have a, a different problem now, it seems, than we had 30 years ago. Crime has come down an awful lot, and so has gun crime. It's not entirely clear why. Indeed, people argue over that, but it has. And this has happened at the point at which guns have doubled in number and the laws have been loosened. Crime is not going up. Gun crime is not going up. What is going up, unfortunately, is the lethality of mass shootings. There's some debate over whether they are more frequent. They seem to be, but whether or not they are, they are more lethal, especially in America. And sort of, I think, five of the worst 10 in America have been in the last four or five years. One common pattern within those mass shootings, and this seems to be increasingly the case, is the AR-15. But I don't think it is the cause of them or the cause of their lethality. I think people who are inclined to do this tend to obsess over school shootings. They tend to plan and plan. They disgustingly see 
previous numbers as numbers to beat. And they gravitate, I think, toward the gun that looks like a machine gun. It's not one, but it looks like a machine gun. It's customizable. It looks like a video game gun. That cosmetic element does also seem to attract a certain sort of person, much in the way that certain cars attract a certain sort of driver. And that is a problem, but I don't think it's a problem that you can solve because I don't think people look at an AR and say, well, now I become a school shooter. I think people say, I'm going to become a school shooter. And they think, well, I will use an AR. So I yes. don't think there would be a big difference if it were banned. And, and in fact, we saw that it is entirely possible, unfortunately, to murder a lot of people with even quite low-powered handguns at Virginia Tech. So. I understand what you're saying, that this sort of person who is going to shoot up a school, that there might be a causal element, that will be the instrument he uses. I say that if you take the AR-15 out of that shooter's hands and put a handgun in, you have less lethality. And I base this on videos I've seen and interviews I've heard with ER doctors and documentation of what the bullet from the, what the round from the AR-15 does to the human body versus a handgun. And even if we look at the three most recent school shootings, the one in Maryland and the one in Kentucky had few victims and there was a handgun used. And the one in Florida had an AR-15 and 17 people are dead. Again, I'm, I'm just simply not convinced by that. What happens in these scenarios is somebody goes into a school or, or wherever with a gun and people run into the corner and they hide in closets and they hide under their desks. And whether you have a handgun or an AR-15 or, or, to be honest with you, a shotgun, which is probably the most lethal of all in those sort of quarters, you're going to cause an awful lot of damage if there's no one firing back. I ha will never pretend to know the answer to this. I really don't know what to do, but I'm not at all convinced that uh, limiting the AR-15's availability is going to help. And I think perhaps one of the differences here between someone with my views and someone with, say, your views is that we have different conceptions of the downside to taking this action. Because I think that there is a, a point to the AR-15, because I believe people should be able to own them, I therefore look at this as, as a trade-off. But if you don't believe that there's really any point in an AR-15, if you don't want one, if you can't see why it would greatly matter if it were banned, then it is entirely rational to come to the view that you have because, well, why not try it? Well, um, actually, I, no, I think of it more like lawn darts. I see the point. They can be fun to play with lawn darts. But once I find that, you know, two kids get impaled by lawn darts, I'd give up my lawn dart. I have no Second Amendment right to a lawn dart. But I will say I know how to deal with lawn darts safely. And yet, if my giving up the lawn dart means five kids in some state that I'll never heard of won't die, that's a trade-off I'd make. Well, let's explore that a little bit then. I mean, a swimming pool, for example, swimming pools are an awful lot more deadly than firearms um, yep. to children on average. Would you think people should give those up? And, no, and I was not, thinking, I thought of swimming pools when I made my lawn dart analogy, and I was thinking, well, another example would be the the fencing around swimming pools. So something that takes something dangerous uh, and something that we both agree has a use, a swimming pool, what could we do to minimize the uh, danger of it. To me, that's something like limiting the size of a magazine or, in fact, 
limiting the type of weapon itself. To me, there is a benefit to owning a gun uh, from sports shooting to self-defense. These type of guns correlate for whatever reason to the mass shootings. Then I want to get into the problem of we're a democracy and it very much upsets us and that alone should be taken seriously. So would it be right to say let's put some fencing, whether literal or theoretical, around this potential danger? I say yes. Well, I would say yes, too, because I think the fencing works. But the fencing, too, but in my analogy with the guns, the fencing is magazine size and the type of gun itself. But you think that those make a difference, and I don't. Right. The reason I bring up swimming pools is that I suspect that you're more likely to balk at the idea of banning swimming pools to save kids, even though we know kids will still die, because you think that there is a real use to swimming pools, which, of course, there is. Um, That was the point I was making, that I I think that it is a good thing that people can own ARs and high-capacity magazines. And so I am not going to try a ban that I think will do nothing. But... Yeah, but if there was a type of swimming pool that was especially correlative to death, then I would seriously considering banning that type of swimming pool. I'm I'm nervous. uh, I'm nervous about correlations in these sorts of debates. We we did see some studies after the assault weapons ban, and it seems to have done very little, if anything. And the most recent one that's being touted just shows a correlation. And I'm just I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I'm not convinced by that. Charles C.W. Cook is the editor of National Review Online, and he is a frequent panelist on one of my favorite podcasts, the National Review Editor's Podcast. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I can just go whenever. Hi, guys. It's Mary again, just popping in to set up my colleague, Osita Wanevu, the guy you just heard, and a writer here at Slate. How's this sound? Mike took issue with one of Osita's written pieces last week in the Thursday show, the Thursday spiel, actually. And when I asked Osita if he wanted a chance to respond, he was all... Uh, well... But it was easy to convince him. Cool. So what follows is a spiel in re another spiel. Take it away, Osita. And now the spiel. It's time to stop yammering about liberal bias. We're now a week into the controversy over the Atlantic's hiring of Kevin Williamson, a longtime writer for National Review. Maybe by now you've heard some of his greatest hits. As my colleague Jordan Weissman wrote, Williamson once compared a black child to a primate and called him a three-fifth scale Snoop Dogg. He's insisted that trans woman Laverne Cox is not a woman, but an effigy of a woman. He's also argued in a now-deleted tweet that women who receive abortions should be executed. Predictably, The debate over whether liberals ought to be angry that Williamson has been afforded a perch at America's leading centrist magazine has been brought into a conversation about liberal bias at places like The Atlantic and in the rest of the mainstream press. Conservatives say that the backlash against Williamson's hiring is compelling proof that bias is real. On Twitter, National Review contributor Dan McLaughlin called criticisms of The Atlantic and Williamson part of a wider liberal campaign to, quote, shout down, defund, and drive out opposing viewpoints in the press. I say this is nonsense. At the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post, arguably America's three leading centrist or perhaps center-left publications, there are, by my casual count, at least 18 conservative or libertarian writers. David Brooks, Brett Stevens, Barry Weiss, Ross Douthat, David Frum, Connor Friedersdorf, Rehan Salam, George Will, Charles Krauthammer, Megan McArdle, Mark Theason, Max Boot, Michael Gerson, Jennifer Rubin, Kathleen Parker, 
Radley Balco, Ed Rogers, and Ann Applebaum. Now, last week, Mike Pesca took an issue with this list. He says many on it are not actually conservative. Of the writers who he lists who write for The Post, George Will, Michael Gerson, Charles Krauthammer, they really are conservative columnists. Of the ones who write for The Times, Ross Douthit, David Brooks, Brett Stevens, Barry Weiss, they're not really that conservative. And in the case of Barry Weiss, not conservative, also not a columnist. And of the ones who write for The Atlantic, none of them are columnists. And almost all are just like really, really interesting writers. And what about the denominator when you're trying to argue we have enough conservatives there in the media? I counted 50 writers on the Atlantic masthead who are listed as staff writers or senior editors or some higher position. And Osito Winevo listed four Atlantic writers who are libertarian or conservative. So they're at 8%. We're all good. Now, a couple of points here. Everyone I've listed writes regularly for the publications, whether they're columnists or not. And really, the fact that Barry Weiss both writes regularly for The Times and has a say in which voices are heard on the op-ed page as an editor only strengthens my argument. Additionally, Mike might not believe that people like Weiss, David Brooks, and Brett Stevens are all that conservative. No one would ever confuse any of them with, say, Bill O'Reilly. But they are conservatives nonetheless. There's a spectrum of opinion on the right, and most people who read those writers have, reasonably, placed them on it. Conservatives themselves certainly seem to believe that Weiss and Stevens are on their side whenever they call criticisms of their columns liberal intolerance for the right. But Peskin makes a couple of important points. I certainly don't believe anything like parody exists here. Obviously, as he says, there are many more liberals than conservatives at those publications, and the opinion staffers at The Atlantic, The Times, and The Post do not in any way reflect the political composition of the country at large. Many would and have argued that something should be done about this. I don't agree. But let's say for the sake of argument that I did, does hiring more people like Kevin Williamson, a critic of the president and his supporters who make up the vast majority of the right in this country, actually do anything to solve this problem? Conservatives, by the way, have been griping about this problem, or this supposed problem, for over half a century. Here's William F. Buckley on a 1966 episode of his show, Firing Line. That bias does in fact exist, so that people who, uh, who dissent from the liberal orthodoxy tend to have fewer opportunities than people who do not dissent. Buckley goes on to say, quote, The final problem really is whether a society can express itself democratically in any reliable way if the prevailing bias prevents it from the opportunity sufficiently to evaluate contrary ideas and contrary opinions, end quote. At one point, his guest, the liberal talk show host David Suskind, suggests the topic of supposed liberal indoctrination on college campuses had been wrung dry since the publication in 1951 of God and Man at Yale. The book recommended banning textbooks and firing professors accused of committing transgressions against the doctrines of Christianity and capitalism. Now think about this for a minute. In 1951, the nation was in the throes of a second Red Scare. A moral panic cost leftists and imagined leftists their jobs and professorships. They were tossed out of friend circles and the good graces of polite society. In 1951, America was vastly more socially conservative than it is today. Conservatives today herald the mores of the time as values we should return to. And yet, even in 1951, conservatives insisted they were being persecuted. This raises a few questions that are rarely asked. If American institutions really were intolerably liberal in 1951 and in 1966, then what would a state of affairs that satisfied the conservative movement actually look like? If the American people really are being indoctrinated into liberalism, if it's happening in their formative years at our schools and colleges and in their adult years by an oppressively slanted press, how exactly does one explain the American political situation in 2018 
With right-wing control of the presidency, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, 33 governorships, and 32 state legislatures. If America's citizenry really has been spoon-fed leftist propaganda for nearly 70 straight years, how come the United States hasn't been reorganized into a collection of semi-autonomous workers' republics? Moreover, if institutional bias is such a problem, why haven't conservatives tried to solve it by building alternative, unbiased institutions? The obvious societal corrective for media bias would be starting publications with a real claim to neutrality. Instead, conservatives have founded a constellation of explicitly partisan outlets ranging from National Review to the Gateway Pundit. The obvious societal corrective for bias at CNN and the major networks would be a truly objective news channel. Instead, we have Fox News. The obvious corrective for bias, indoctrination, and intolerance at our universities would be supporting and sending young people to colleges that strenuously avoid endorsing particular viewpoints. Instead, conservatives openly support explicitly conservative institutions, such as Hillsdale, Liberty, and Bob Jones. If there aren't enough neutral purveyors of information in American society, the conservative efforts to address the issue amount to a moral failure. So why should liberals welcome Kevin Williamson into the fold, without complaint, even though his former publication, National Review, employs not one liberal or leftist for regular commentary? And when, moreover, is National Review going to get around to hiring writers that support the president as openly and enthusiastically as the majority of conservatives in this country do? The arguments on Williamson's behalf for representational fairness are coming mostly from people at conservative publications that don't even do a good job of representing conservative opinions. As far as I'm concerned, until the Daily Caller hires a full-time writer who regularly makes the case for taking Marx and microaggressions seriously— and until the snootier organs of the right challenge their readers to engage the views offered in the Gateway Pundit, the right's complaints on the subject should be dismissed out of hand and without regret. If that puts those of us in the liberal media out of touch with the right wing, so be it. At least we'll be a step above Williamson and his anti-Trump defenders. After all, they are themselves out of touch with the entirety of the left, the vast majority on the right, and of course, reality. That's our show. The Gist is produced by Pierre Bienname, who for one week would love to see the weather forecasts delivered by philosophers. Although to the Nietzsche scholar, there's always a chance the sun will not come up tomorrow. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, our resident former Marine. He'd like daycare professionals to switch places with drill instructors because life is a battlefield and four-year-olds can handle it. Mike Pesca is the host of The Gist. He thinks high-placed bureaucrats should be replaced by podcast hosts. He'll be back Tuesday. For The Gist, I'm Mary Wilson. We think train conductors should be replaced by stand-up comedians. The late-night service would be better. Doors close, zing! Oomperoo, deperoo, duperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>